0: Okay, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue looking at Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, we're going to read verse 13 to verse 16. This is what Jesus taught. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for this Sunday to come together and to open your word to listen, to sit at your feet, to listen to the Master teach. And God, we thank you for what you taught us so long ago and what you're teaching us through these very words today by your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that you'd give us ears to hear and understanding, God, to understand your Word and your truth. Lord, we thank you, and we want you to be glorified. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1963, a Jewish man by the name of Arthur Katz, or Art Katz, was hitchhiking across Western Europe. Art was your quintessential modern Jew, as he himself said. He was born in Brooklyn, New York. Art was uh, a self-proclaimed Marxist atheist. So he had rejected his heritage. He had rejected... God and he had embraced Marxism, atheism. He was uh, educated with multiple degrees. He had, had degrees from Berkeley and he was a teacher, teacher of history. But Art was disillusioned because there, he had experienced a crisis in his soul. He said he was a man his foundations were broken. He knew how to raise questions and he didn't know how to answer them. And so he took a sabbatical from teaching and he just began to travel, hitchhiking across Western Europe, looking for answers, seeking answers, disillusioned with what he believed. Cynical about life. You know, seeing the, the suffering that took place in the world, in, his, in those communist places that he was supporting, in the capitalist places that he lived, just looking for Truth looking for life. And he says that it was through the kindness of strangers that he came to know God. One of the most significant stranger to him was a man that picked him up while he was in Switzerland. It was pouring rain. Art is kind of a big guy. He passed away now. I had the privilege of meeting him. And um, he said that it was pitch dark, it was raining, and for someone to pick me up, it would have been, you know, they would have had to have been somebody pretty special. So a brand new car pulls over and picks him up. Brand new car. And the man jumps out of the car, runs over to Art as if he was a, like a, a, an old friend, embraces him, grabs his bag, throws his muddy sack into the back of his beautiful car, not even concerned about the upholstery, and welcomes Art into the car and drives, drives off. They're both speaking German to one another. And the man asks, Where are you traveling? Just beaming. And Art says, and he doesn't know why he said this. It was something about the man that just drew him in and he said, I'm just a modern man who's broken at his foundations. I'm searching for answers and I'm cynical and I'm losing hope and and I'm a Jew, he said. He doesn't know why he said that. (laughs) But when the man heard that, he was just thrilled, just so overwhelmed to have Art in his car. And he said, let's go, get a, let's go get something to eat at my expense. And so they went and sat down at a place and the man just listened to Art talk and share his frustrations and share how he didn't have answers. He didn't believe there was answers. Communism had fallen apart. Forcing men to be equal doesn't work. It's fake. It's plastic. To just say we're all the same isn't true. He realized, isn't there a way that we can embrace one another and love one another even though we're not the same? You know, talk about, for example, racism. Well, there are black people and there are white people. We don't have to say we're all just colorless people. But can a white man love a black man as a black man? Or does he have to just pretend everyone's equal? You can't force people to give wealth to other people. It's kind of a hard lesson for people to learn. If it's not from the heart, it just falls apart. People don't work. People don't want to give. People become selfish. It's the exact problem he was seeing in the communist countries. And education wasn't helping. Art was an educated man, and he was a broken man with no answers, able to raise questions but not answer them. Karl Marx's hero had said religion is the opiate of the masses. So religion wasn't the answer either in Art's mind because religion just stifles men from their true potential, this man that picked him up said, Art, do you know what the world needs? Do you know what it is that the world needs? And in his full, he was a fully skeptical and cynical, he crossed his arms and he looked at this man as if he had two heads. He says, you tell me what the world needs. I'm the one who's educated. I'm the one who's trying to find answers and I can't find it." Yes, please tell me what the world needs. <clears throat> what Art said this man said changed his life forever. He said when he said it, it was like his spirit fell out of his mouth and was whimpering on the floor. (laughs) What was it that was so impactful to this man? The stranger said to him, Art, what the world needs is for men to wash one another's feet. And in that phrase... Everything hit him like a ton of bricks. In that phrase is humility. Humility. And humility was the one thing Art had never considered or even thought of. It wasn't even in his paradigm. And he saw in an instant that it was humility that the world lacked and humility that the world needs. And of course, that was a teaser because how does men, how do men get Humility. Washing one another's feet. Where does that come from? Where does that expression come from? Who knows? Jesus. John chapter 13. And in that chapter, we find Jesus. It's, the chapter starts Jesus knowing, Brad, you once pointed this out to me. The chapter begins in John 13. Like this. In verse 3. Jesus, you can turn there. John 13, verse 3. Brad once read this to me and then asked me what comes next. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? What did he do next? When Brad asked me that, I didn't know. I said, I don't know. I don't remember what I said, but it wasn't what was next. It says, He rises from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself, and he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Wow. Why does it say verse 3? Jesus, knowing all things had been given into his hands that he had come from God and was going to God. Washes the disciples' feet. Acts like a servant. Blows the disciples' paradigms because they say, no, Lord. Even Peter, right? He thinks he knows best. No, Lord. I will wash your feet, but you won't wash mine. This isn't right. You're the master. You're the Messiah. You're the chief one. We should be serving you. You shouldn't be serving us. And Jesus was teaching them something here, wasn't he? He says, if I, your Lord and Master, washed your feet, how much more ought you to do the same? He's teaching humility. This event changed Art's life forever because he realized he had met someone who knew God. He said only God, only God could have taught a man to say something like that, and only God could teach men humility. Art gave a charge to Christians, to those who know know their God, to reflect him in the world, to be representatives of his humility in the world. What the world needs is the true knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God isn't that God is super mighty. Now, God is super mighty. But if you know God is mighty and created all things, you still don't know the true knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God isn't merely that God is just and a moral God and requires you to be moral. If you know that, it's true, but you still don't know God. You don't have the true knowledge of God, if that's all you know. Only when you can see God kneeling down, half naked, washing a bunch of blockhead's feet. And that's symbolic of what he was about to do the next day. Do you know God, the true knowledge of God, and the essence of who God is? The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The knowledge of God comes through knowing God through Jesus Christ. And understanding not Jesus as just simply a moral example, but as your Savior, who came into the world to save you, not a good person, but a sinner who doesn't deserve it who deserves the opposite. This is the knowledge of God that will change the world and bless the world. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a family, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Remember what family that was. Who was the head of that family? Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. You will be the channel of blessing throughout the whole world. In Exodus chapter 19, God, when he brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai, right when they arrive at Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses to tell the people of Israel that he brought them out to this place so that they might as a nation be a kingdom of priests unto God a kingdom of priests and a light to the world that through them knowing God, they would be the ones who speak for God to man and reveal God to man and so being blessed themselves become a blessing to others. And the Jewish people believed and still believe they are the light of the world. They actually used that expression. They used it in Jesus' day. Our nation, we are the light of the world. That's what they would say. Remember, we hear that saying that Jesus says, light of the world, right? Look at, look at Romans chapter 2, verse 19 briefly. And you'll see the mindset of the average Israelite. They believe they were the light of the world. Specifically, they believe their teachers within the nation were the light of the world. So Romans chapter 2, verse 19. This is when Paul addresses the Jew. He says, You are a Jew. You rest in the law. You make your boast of God. You know his will and are approved the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. And verse 19, And are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. They prided themselves. This is our mission as a people. God saved us out of Egypt in order to make us the light of those in darkness. The Jewish people believed that being a light to the world meant bringing the world the knowledge of the law of God and of true righteousness. So they would think that when a person turns from darkness to light, they've turned from a life of sin to a life of obedience to God's law. This is what they still think today. A person has come to the knowledge of God and turn from their sins, turn from darkness when they've come to know the law, been instructed in the way that is excellent, the way that is right. Now Israel, the nation, failed at doing this in two ways. First of all, when God first brought them into the land, how did they do? Did they obey the law or did they disobey the law? They disobeyed the law, right? So they became like the other nations, and the other nations didn't really benefit at all from Israel in the land. Because Israel in the land actually became like the other nations. The other nations didn't become like Israel, right? Israel worshipped idols and left the law. They departed from the law. That's the story of the kings. The story of the kings and the prophets is the kings would not obey the law and left the law. The prophets are always calling them back to that. What happened at the end of that Block of history. Did God let it go on and on and on? He sent the Babylonians, and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and exiled the people into their land. But that wasn't the end of it, wasn't? It? Wasn't it? God brought the people back to the land. Here's their second shot at it. Now, the second time Israel was in the land, they changed. It's important to understand that after the Babylonian captivity, Israel put away their idols, so to speak. And that's why when you come to the time of the first century where the apostles and Jesus are preaching, you don't find Israel worshiping Baal. You find them under the leadership of the Pharisees, zealous for the law. So they, in a sense, thought they learned their lesson. You know what? We were destroyed because of our idolatry. We need to take God seriously. When we come back to the land, it's time to be serious about the law. It's time to obey the law. It's time to make everybody toe the line. We are going to be obedient to the mission that God has given us. This is the, at- this is the atmosphere of Israel in the time of the second temple after they returned from Babylon and when Jesus shows up on the scene. But they failed also on that account, because God destroyed them again, didn't he, in 70 AD. And when Jesus showed up, and when John the Baptist showed up, and the apostles, when they preached, did they have commendation for the Pharisees, or were they critical of the Pharisees? They were critical. They were their chief opponents. And the Pharisees didn't much like Jesus either. That's what the law, without the true knowledge of God, does. The law tells you what you need to do. That's what the law does. You, Jacob, shall not lie. That is the conditions for you. You shall not lie. If you lie, you are not being what is required of you. And the law curses you and will cut you off. Now, if you obey the law, all will be well. Now, brothers and sisters, what does the Bible teach us about obedience to the law? Who obeys the law of God, according to the Bible? Who of us can say we are without sin and that we do what we know God requires of us? Anyone? Anyone outside of this room, do you think, can say that I obey the law, I'm obedient to all of God's commands? Can people say that? The Bible says no. No one will be righteous before God. By the law, So the Pharisees should have known that. But what happens is, if you only know that God is a God of law and that God is a God of justice, and you only think that the only way for me to be accepted by God is that I obey the law, and you find yourself not obeying the law, what hope do you have then in confessing yourself to be a sinner? If you confess that you don't obey and you have no other knowledge of God than that he'll only accept you if you obey, then you won't be honest with God, and confess that you disobey. You become a hypocrite. This is the condition that Jesus found the Pharisees in. They were hypocrites. They pretended that they obeyed because that was their only knowledge of God. They pretended that they obeyed, and they were full of pride, not humility. We have pride when we do something When it's about what you do, then it's inevitable that you're going to have pride. If I were to write a book, you couldn't be proud about that book. You might be proud that uh, your pastor wrote the book, but you wouldn't be proud that you wrote the book because you didn't do it. I could be proud. I inevitably would be, unfortunately, if I wrote it. Because if you do something, if, if, if you cook a wonderful meal, you can take pride in that because you did it. You accomplished it. If you win the Olympic Games, you take pride in that because you did something. And if you keep the commandments and the law, you take pride in that, not humility. Matthew chapter 5, back in Matthew 5. Jesus is now addressing, in Matthew five thirteen and 16, He's addressing the people of God who are, to, who are supposed to know who God is. When you think the people of God, think those who know God. That's who the people of God are. Those who know who God is. And Jesus addresses the people of God here and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You who know God many sermons have been preached on these verses. The verses before it, the passage, we call it the Beatitudes. And commonly, this passage this morning has been called the Similitudes. Salt, you are, rec- you are likened unto salt as the people of God. You are likened unto a city on a hill as the people of God. And you're likened unto the light of the world as the people of God. So let's look at these. First of all, the salt of the earth. In the ancient world, salt was extremely important in the, in the ancient world. It flavored their food like it does today. F- salt is pretty important today for flavoring food, right? What if we didn't have salt? That'd be a pretty big loss in the culinary industry, right? So likewise, in the ancient world, salt was very important as well for flavoring food, but also for preserving food. We have freezers now. And uh, we can put food into freezers and refrigerators and it preserves it pretty well. But in their day, they used salt in order to preserve food because salt acts as a preservative. And because of this, salt was actually a symbol for covenants. I don't know if you knew that, but salt was associated with a covenant, something that lasts, something that doesn't deteriorate. If, if a man and a woman enter a covenant in marriage... They would celebrate it with salt. Salt is associated with, this is a covenant that is going to last. It's going to have longevity. It's not going to pass away. The people of God, Jesus says, are like that. The people of God are like salt in this earth. Just think about it. What do you think the world would be like without the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God? What would the world be like without the true knowledge of God? Do you think it would be a good place? Have we not seen in history what this world is like without the true knowledge of God? We can read about what things were like outside in the pagan world, in the ancient world, and it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. Violence characterized those days, it says in the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, you can, you can see a list of attributes that the world without the knowledge of God is like. Men are boastful, proud, disobedient to parents, bloodthirsty, unthankful, merciless, wicked, perverse. Without the knowledge of God, that is the inevitable result of a world. Have you heard of the Judeo-Christian ethic? You know, we talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic. What is that? The Judeo-Christian ethic is the biblical principles of, of morality and life, right? Did you know that the Judeo-Christian ethic never influenced the world until Christ came and the apostles' preached and the Christian church grew because the Jewish people were not light to their world. They didn't influence the world. In the ancient world, the non Uh, Jewish nations didn't talk about the Jewish ethic. In fact, before Babylon, they didn't know one existed. And after Babylon, they looked upon the Jew as a hypocritical, self-righteous race. In Romans chapter 2, he says, the name of God is blasphemed because of you. you Remember that in Romans chapter 2? The ancient world didn't look too kindly upon the Jew. They saw them as stuck-up, self-righteous, proud people who thought they were the best. So they didn't talk about a Judeo-ethic that was good. Not until Christ came and died and the true knowledge of God began to spread throughout the world. How can we even talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic? In Christ's day, humility was non-existent. Ancient historians say that humility was introduced into the world through Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now today, we don't think that humility is such a, a novel idea because we're so used to it. We're used to 2,000 years of Christian history, and humility is a part of our, our fabric, a part of our life. If you would read a short document written in the ancient world called The Divine Acts of Caesar Augustus, you might be amazed. So Caesar basically says, he, he gives a category of, of good deeds that he did using the word I. I gave money to this cause. I saved the, Roman, the Romans from this army. I did this. I did that. And he's, there's no sense of uh, humility and there's no sense of shame that there's no humility. He just basically has bragging rights because of the things that he did. And in the ancient world, the Romans figured that if you did some good thing, then you should brag about it. So brag about it. Have you ever heard of the virtues? of the ancient world, none of it has humility. They talk about courage. They talk about self-control. If you have these things, you're a virtuous person. And if you have them, you can brag about it. You can say, look at how great I am. I did this, I did that. Jesus introduced to the world humility. Because Jesus introduced into the world the true knowledge of God. This is what it means to be the salt of the earth, brothers and sisters. You are the salt of the earth. Without salt, the earth is a pretty unpalatable world. Salt changes the character of the world. And salt is, we're like little speckles in the world, aren't we? The whole world isn't salty. But We are the salt of the earth. We are those who disseminate the knowledge of God, those who know God. And the knowledge of God is humility, love, grace, these things that are foreign to the world's mind without Christ. In Mark chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus says, Salt, if it loses its savor, is good for nothing but to be cast out. Then he says, Have peace within yourselves. Have peace within yourselves. He says this is what it is to be salty, to be at peace with God and at peace with man. This peace comes through the knowledge of Jesus. He gives a warning in Matthew 5. He says if salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out. And here he's giving a direct warning to the people of Israel as a nation. He's saying you are the salt of the earth. That is what you are supposed to be. But if you've lost your savor, and if you are bad salt, then you're good for nothing but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot of men. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. And the history of the Israelite nation is one of being trodden underfoot of men because they have not been the salt of the earth as they were supposed to be. Secondly, you are the light of the world. Another description of those who know God. The purpose of light is to see in darkness. The world is a dark and ignorant place without the knowledge of God, and wickedness is the result of this. The people that know God are to be the light of the world. The Jews in a sense were right that to be the light of the world meant bringing people to a knowledge of the law and to a knowledge of righteousness, but they did not have a true knowledge of the law or of righteousness. And so they never accomplished that mission, and they caused the opposite. The true knowledge of the law is not to say that, you know, as long as you try your best, as long as you do what you can, God will say that's obedience. You know, when God looks upon this world and he's looking for righteous people, he's going to look at those who are trying to keep the law. That's not the true knowledge of the law at all. The law demands absolute moral perfection. If you play the hypocrite and pretend that you're an obedient person, you are disgracing and obscuring the true knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God would be when you tell somebody, you know, when God thinks about goodness, he thinks about total goodness. When God commands us to obey, he tells us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That means you care about your neighbor. He even includes your enemy in that just as much as you care about yourself. The law is holy, just, and good. Now, if you said, and I, and I keep the law, you're not spreading the true knowledge of God. Now, if you said, and you know what? I don't keep the law. You don't lose your testimony, as Brad said. You don't lose your testimony if you're a sinner. You lose your testimony if you're a hypocrite. That's why the ancient world hated the Jew, because they were hypocrites. If they were honest and said, you know what, we're sinners. God gave us this beautiful law, and we don't keep it. I think the world would have listened. Righteousness. They thought, well, righteousness is you just trying to you know, do your best at keeping the law. The gospel teaches us that righteousness is through the death of Jesus Christ, through believing and putting your hope outside of yourself in Jesus. Only the gospel gives us the true knowledge of the law and of righteousness and therefore of God. Let's make this very clear this morning. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be righteous before God by the law because you're a sinner and every day you prove that you are a disobedient person. Every day, you don't listen to your conscience. You don't do that which you know God requires of you. And therefore, if you're honest, you have to say, I'm disobedient and I don't keep the law. I'm unrighteous according to that standard. The gospel reveals to us that no one will be righteous that way, but there's a new way to be righteous. There's another way to be righteous besides the law, Romans 3.21. Apart from obeying the law, you can be righteous before God. How how is that? It's a mystery. It's It's something new. It's something strange. It is that Christ came out of heaven to serve you, to give his life for you, a ransom for you. That Christ, as your substitute, died upon the cross in your place. What a strange thing. We sang about this morning, that you, my king, would die for me. This, my friends, is the way of righteousness. Not pretending to obey the law, but confessing yourself to be a sinner and believing upon Christ who died for sinners. Jesus knows you're a sinner. Jesus knows you don't deserve to go to heaven. Jesus knows what you deserve. And he came to give you what you don't deserve. There's a word for that grace receiving something you don't deserve based upon the goodness of the giver that's grace when grace is preached the law is honored because we're not depreciating it but putting it in its proper place and we're saying this is exactly what god means when he talks about obeying the law and brothers and sisters none of us do that therefore we need christ Christ does it for us. This is what it is to have a testimony. If you go out on the street and tell people this, people will listen to you. But if you go out on the street and say, hey, come join our church. We keep the commandments of God. We're obedient, righteous people. And you should turn from your wickedness and unrighteousness and be like us. Yeah, the world will blaspheme God because of you. We'll see right through that phoniness. But if you go out and tell people, look, I'm a sinner just like you. If God were to judge the two of us according to his law, we'd both be found guilty and unworthy of eternal life. But I've got really good news. The good news of the gospel is that God loves us. And God loves us as sinners. He's shown us his love for us as sinners, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means when God looked upon us and saw us as unworthy, when God looked upon us and saw us as evil and sinful and wicked and disobedient, he loved us. He loved us. He loved us. And he sent his son to pay for our sins and to die for our sins so that we might be righteous through believing in him, through faith as a gift, because he loves us. Now you'll get people listening the ones who won't like that are the Pharisees. (laughs) Because you're essentially saying they're wrong and their good deeds don't count and that they're just like the other sinners and they don't like that. Why? Because it cuts away at their pride, which they're enjoying in their hypocrisy. Christianity, for us, isn't about being sinless in our own works. It's about being gracious, being humble, being full of mercy. Every believer, according to the New Testament, is a child of God and a child of Abraham. That means you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. You Christians who have believed the good news of the gospel, you are to this world salt and to this world light. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Those that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You can read that two ways. The way the Pharisees did, those who are wise and are going to be the lights of the world are those who turn wicked sinners to obedience like us, to righteousness according to works. That's what they were thinking that's what they were trying. Or you can read that through the eyes of Jesus Christ in the gospel and realize those who are wise and are the light of the world are those who turn men to righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Who turn them to the knowledge, the true knowledge of the law that no one can be justified by it and the true knowledge of God's love for sinners in Christ and the way of forgiveness and salvation as a gift through him. Those are the lights of the world. In 1 Peter, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, a familiar passage to many. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Peter is now speaking, he says this amazing thing to the Christians, to those who believe the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace for sinners. He says this amazing thing. Right after saying that Jesus was a stumbling stone for the builders, for the Pharisees, he then says, but for you. Verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now this is echoing the Old Testament from Exodus. God saved the people out of Egypt to be for their mission to be a light to this world. And now he's talking to those who have been saved from their sin through Jesus Christ. This is your mission. You now are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation of peculiar people that you should show forth the excellencies in the Greek, that you should show forth the beauty of him, the beauty of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, in times past you are not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained what you deserve. Now, mercy. The people of God are not those who get what they deserve. The people of God is not a badge that you earn like in the Navy SEALs. You know, you go through the training, you complete all the training, you come out on top, everyone else goes home, and now you can brag that you're a Navy SEAL. That's not how it is with the people of God. You're not the people of God because you looked at the law, you did it, everyone else failed, you accomplished it, you get what you deserve, and now you can be a light to the world. That's not how it works. You know how much pride you'd have? More pride than a Navy SEAL. Right? You believe that? No, you receive mercy, and because you received mercy, you can shine as a light in this world. Otherwise, you couldn't shine. You can't shine if you don't have an understanding of mercy and grace you just become a self-righteous legalist and you'd be stinky, not salty. <laughs> What's interesting is that in Matthew 5, he says, let your good deeds or your good works shine before men. You ever wonder why he says that? Because in Matthew 6, he says, don't do your good deeds before men, right? <laughs> So, is there a contradiction here? Why does Jesus say, let your good works shine before men? And in Matthew 6 says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Go into your room, close the door. If you're going to fast, wash your face so no one knows you're fasting. Be a secret good person, basically. Do good things secretly. What's interesting is that the Greek word here in Matthew 5, verse 16, for good works, isn't actually the word good. Now, many places in the New Testament when it talks about good works, it uses the word good in Greek. Agathos, that's the word good. So in, say, the book of Romans, it's very common, when Paul's talking about how if you want to be justified by the law, you have to do good. Of course, no one is justified by the law, but if you want to be, you have to do good. He uses the word agathos. Mor- he uses the word you know, morals, do good deeds. Righteous things according to the law. He doesn't use that word here. He uses the word kalos, which means beautiful. He's not necessarily talking about moral deeds here. Good deeds according to the law, like helping the poor not stealing. He's talking about the beauty of humility. The Pharisees did their good deeds, that is, they gave money to the poor in order to be praised by men. Jesus is saying here, as those who know God, Let your beautiful deeds of humility and mercy bring glory to God. Just like Art Katz met that guy, he said, There's something about this guy that can only be of God because men don't do that. Humility, brothers and sisters, is so inhuman and divine. What's very interesting, though, did you know that the word humility comes from the Latin word humus, which means the ground or the earth? To be humble is to be low, as low as the ground. Did you know that the word human comes from the same Latin word as well? Isn't that interesting that the same word human and humility come from the same word ground? Because as we know in Genesis, you know where you came from? I'm not speaking generally, but about every one in particular here. We came from the dirt, didn't we? God made us from the ground. And we're humans because we're of the dirt. And God calls us to be humble and walk in humility, which you cannot do, you cannot do without the knowledge of God, without knowing Christ, without believing in Christ. It's impossible. Because otherwise, without Christ, it's all about what you do. If we were to remove the good news of the gospel, all we'd have is religion that is about what you do. Navy SEALs Christianity. And there cannot be humility when it's about what you do. There can only be humility when it's not about what you do. When salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2 verse 9. There can only be humility because of the gospel, because of the grace of God. That's the only remedy for pride. So he says, shine. You are the children of light. Walk as the children of light, walk as those who know God. Remember the gospel, remember why you're saved why you are what you are. So it's not about good deeds, but about beauty. Because, brothers and sisters, good deeds can be very ugly, can't they? And that's the point of Matthew chapter 6. Good deeds can be very ugly. Just like the Pharisees who did all these good deeds to be seen of men. In closing, I want to make this point emphatic it is not about what you are in the world, per se, that I want to draw your attention to. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, people of God. You are the light of the world, people of God. That's what, that's what you are. But the point I want you to take away from this morning is why you are what you are. What you are to this world is salt and light. But why are you that? It's because, as Christians, you know God. That's why you can be salt and why you can be light. Because as Christians, you've come to know God through Jesus Christ. You're only light because of that. You're not light because of anything in and of yourself. Just pull up your bootstraps and be a good person and you'll shine some light in this world. Not true. You're only light and you're only salt because of him. So I say to Christians here today, you who know God, the same charge Art Katz gave, be bright and salty. I don't mean go flaunt your good deeds. I mean let the beauty of humility and of grace shine in this dark world. Do you have an obnoxious co-worker? Maybe this is a good opportunity for you to see him as the gospel sees him or her and to bring humility into your workplace. Are you going on a trip soon? Go as an ambassador for Christ. There's a lot of religious people in this world that are going to be flaunting their good deeds around. Take humility with you. You go out to a restaurant and your waiter gives you horrible service. Are you going to think, you should treat me better. I'm paying. I'm the one that you're supposed to be serving. I'm not going to give you a good tip. Why don't you think, oh, I'm here to serve you. You're not just here to serve me. You seem to be having a really bad day. Let me give you a large tip so I can bless you, so I can go low and lift others up, just like Christ went low and lifted me up, even though I did not deserve it. Humility has nothing to do with whether someone deserves it or not. If you walk in humility towards others, it's not because they deserve it. You'll never walk in humility then. Let it sink down into your ears. You did not deserve God God's son to serve you, did you? If you're not a Christian, you need to know God. You need to know who He is. A person can be so close to being a Christian and not a Christian like I was before I became a Christian. You can know that there's a God. You can know that He's great and worthy to be praised. You can know that he's just and righteous and holy in all that he does. You can know that he's given a law to mankind and that mankind must obey it and there's a judgment day, and you cannot know who God is because you don't know God through Jesus Christ and his grace. You could believe in Jesus and not know God if you have an incorrect understanding of who Jesus is. If you think that Jesus came simply to be an example... Or Jesus just came to point us the way, rather than him being the way of our salvation through his blood that he shed upon the cross. The cross, as we sang about, is where the love of God for sinners who don't deserve it is revealed. And that through his death, undeserving sinners are saved by grace. As we sang this morning. So don't fool yourself if you know a lot about God that may be true. You can know a lot about somebody that may be true and not know them. Do you know God full of grace and mercy and humility? Do you know God? Legalism turns men away from God. But as Christians, as we share the grace of God with them, not only with our words, but with our life, men shall be turned to God and not away from God. They shall glorify God, as Jesus said. They shall see that beauty and give glory to God. So people who know their God, let the beauty of the Lord shine before men. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Why are you what you are? Let's pray. Lord, we are at a loss for words when we think about how beautiful you are in what your beauty consists. You're so much more than good in a moral, good deed sense. But you are amazing, as we sang this morning, because you love sinners and do the unthinkable, the inhuman, ironically. You became human in order to serve, wash feet, and die for us and for our sins. We don't deserve it. God, please keep us from ugly good deeds that are filthy rags in your sight. Help us to understand that just because something is a good deed doesn't mean it's beautiful. Help us to see that, help us to see what you see as beautiful and what you see as ugly. Help us to see that Christianity isn't about being for us sinless in our works, but it's about receiving mercy and giving mercy. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the amazing mission that you've given us, that you have saved us to serve in this way. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for shedding your blood for our sins and making us totally clean through your blood as a gift. I thank you for every person in this room that knows knows you. And I pray for those who don't, that they would come to know you. And I thank you for this time in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.